We're back here in the courtroom of current events with another episode of Peter's Proffer. And today we're hitting on the courtroom, and it is a big-time current event. We're going to go through and talk about the nominating process for Supreme Court justices, since that's going on right now. We'll share with you how it works, what the likelihood of success is, and uh, how we're going to navigate these waters as we go through with our country in the coming months. So uh, thanks for listening in. If you ever have any questions or comments, hit us up on social media at Tragos Law or email me, PeterTragos at GreekLaw.com. All right, so this week I've got my dad coming on the podcast um, he happens to be an expert on this type of stuff because it's what he's interested in. And coming up as a lawyer, he was a federal prosecutor, the chief assistant of the criminal division at the U.S. Attorney's Office. He still practices a lot of federal criminal law. He's been on lots of judicial nominating committees. He knows how this process works. So he's going to educate us today on what the Supreme Court justice nominating process is like and how it differs from how other judges become judges. Well, federal judges, when they're first selected, are usually selected by the senator uh, within their particular state. And they're selected through a committee. In Florida, for instance, our two senators have jointly appointed a committee, a nominating committee. That nominating committee puts forth a name. It goes to the senators. The senators sent that name up to the Department of Justice, where I used to work. And the Department of Justice then investigates, talks to them, decides that they like them, and then they send the name to the president, and the president sends the name to the United States Senate. A lot of people don't realize it, but only the United States Senate has advice and consent. They're the only ones who vote on any judges. The House of Representatives has nothing to do with it. If you have a state that doesn't have a senator, then the highest or senior-ranking congressman of the party of the president, he becomes the one that makes the selection. So most judges today, when they be, they're nominated for the Supreme federal Court. Federal judges you're talking federal about? Federal judges, okay. right. When they're nominated for the Supreme Court, have been through a process. For instance, the current nominee sits on the Circuit Court of Appeals of the District of Columbia. Well, that means that he's already gone through the process once, already been to the Senate, already been investigated, so that... They now just have to update him from the last investigation when he got his appointment, which I believe was about 10 years ago. So what happens is the president will ask his chief advisors and the people he really trusts. Uh, even Pam Biondi, our attorney general, went up to D.C. to talk to the president about the nominee for a Supreme Court justice. When they get the names kind of narrowed down, then it goes to the Department of Justice. People don't realize how much investigating goes on beyond the, behind the scenes. They will have FBI agents go out. They'll talk to their mothers. They'll talk to their fathers. They'll talk to neighbors. They'll talk to uh, people that have had contact with them in the legal profession. Everybody they can find. They'll even go talk to college classmates to find out what they can, if there's any dirt that can be dug up about the individual. So in this process, and I think it's funny because it, it, your description sounds to me like when NFL teams are about to draft somebody in the first round or the first overall prospect, they actually hire these firms to go out and do these investigations on these players, go back and uh, interview their second grade teachers back home, interview their parents, their friends, any you know criminal action they had, they dig through all those files and they go through and they do all this stuff before picking somebody number one in the draft. 
but this is the actual federal government doing this background check and doing this digging on these on these candidates. Well, the funny thing is, Peter, the same people that do the NFL investigations probably did the FBI right. investigations because they they're do. ex-FBI agents. Exactly, exactly. So that's what they do. And, and I also know... Uh, um, I've had some friends and some people that have gone up just to be federal judges, not even Supreme Court justices, and they do the same thing, and they read through every article they ever wrote, whether it's in law school, whether it's an opinion they gave as a state court judge, whether it's an email that they wrote on the civil procedure rules committee in their state, if they were ever on that committee and they wrote an opinion or had an opinion about a rule that was coming up, that is fair game for them to look into and use against them when they're going through this interview process as to why did you have this thought on something that may have been a rule 10 years ago when you were sitting on this committee? So they really go through everything they've ever thought in their entire legal career and can use it against them potentially, or, you know, use it to try to flesh out what their thoughts are on a certain subject. Well, I recently had a federal court judge nominee call me because he couldn't find an article he wrote. And I was president of the Florida Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers at the time. He wrote it for our organization. He asked me if I had a copy of it because he couldn't find it. And I had to go dig up a copy for him because even for just a federal district judge, they wanted everything he ever wrote in his whole life. And we say just. That's obviously a very serious big time lifelong type of judge they're nominated and appointed for life so it's no joke but we're comparing it to a supreme court justice just a level below that that's all when we say just a federal court judge and once they get all this together up at the department of justice they actually have people up there that read every court opinion ever written by this judge since he sits on the court of appeals for the district of columbia he's written a lot of opinions every single one of them has been looked at read over, and they have tried to figure out what questions the Senate's going to ask, which is another part of the process. Right. Once this investigation is all done, and if they come out being, well, you know, this guy's acceptable, he's got a clean record, then they send it to guy the president. Guy or girl. Right. Then they send it to the president. And the president then will then make a decision. Once the president decides who his nominee is going to be, then there's a whole other set of work uh, that's put together, another set, another group of people and that group of people trains all right before we get there just because i want to ask a question so isn't it true that most of the supreme court justices in the past and even the nominees come from two or three or four courts of appeals they, they don't usually pick it from you know the florida the second district court of appeals or whatever in florida isn't it usually southern district of new york or you know uh, district of columbia or whatever those types of court of appeals not really true for the last one because Gorsuch, Gorsuch came from Denver. Right, but I'm talking, generally speaking, don't the majority of them, like, I thought I saw something that said, like, 80% of people ever nominated came from three or four courts or something across America. Well, that's true, and if you're also well, which courts are they? Well, the District of Columbia is one, and the Southern District of okay. New York are the two most popular. Okay. But if you also want to increase your odds and say, hey, I'm going to be a Supreme Court justice, then you need to go to Yale or Harvard. Right. Because I think all of them that sit up there now went to either Yale or Harvard. And the other thing you have to be is Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish, because those are the only religions that are represented ever. on the court. Yes. Ever? It's, okay. Not That's, ever, but oh. actually I think it might be ever. Okay, but yeah. those are the, the majority are those right. things. That's interesting how it's – and realize these judges sit up there for a long time. It's not like they're right. going – it's not like they're shuffling in and out a lot. So it's not – 
it's in it's an exclusive group as same thing talk about like professional sports how there's only 30 teams or whatever so it's an exclusive group this is way more exclusive than that especially for how long they sit in these chairs personally for me i think it's sad that they don't come from other districts or they don't go to other law schools because that gives them kind of a limited scope of what their experience has been and it really should reflect more of the country what's amazing to me and this is kind of getting off topic but what's amazing to me is that most of America did not go to Yale or Harvard, but still look at people that went to Yale or Harvard as the cream of the crop. And I think that's interesting because lots of people like us, for example, we think, oh, Florida State's the best school in Florida. That's where we went. A lot of people think that about the place that they went. But when it comes to picking somebody for a Supreme Court justice, everybody just kind of agrees, oh, Yale and Harvard is where they should be from. But I agree. I think it is kind of cutting from the same cloth and getting so many of the same types of people with the same uh, education can be problematic for a Supreme Court, although that's why Yale and Harvard, I'm arguing with myself, Yale and Harvard pride themselves on being diverse and who they take into their school as well, which is why that's such a big deal because they form the leadership of our country. You know, another thing to look at, how many Supreme Court justices today were not judges before they became Supreme Court justices? You look at, for instance, Powell, who's passed away and was a fabulous Supreme Court justice. He went to the University of Chicago. He was a Midwestern guy and brought that Midwest look into the court. So you've got very few. And he wasn't a judge. Excuse me, that was Steve Stevens. Powell was not a judge, and he came from Virginia. Okay. Uh, so you got Powell and you got Stevens. Stevens was not a judge before becoming. Right. What, what he, did he do? Stevens was a private practice in Chicago. Okay, what about Powell? Powell was in private practice. I think it was Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. And and I think that is really interesting because that's something most people wouldn't know is that you don't have to actually already have been a judge before you become a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, but now it seems like you've got to be a District Court of Appeals judge. You've got to have gone to Harvard or Yale, and you've got to be from, again, those particularly large districts. Which is interesting because it does seem like the world is moving that way, like basically scared and want to make sure that they have all the information about this person before they put them in the Supreme Court, which is not how it was. And like you said, some people really love those Supreme Court justices, even with their background. But it maybe it has turned a little bit with who's president now with no experience being president before. Maybe the world is uh, uh, bucking back on the trend that, you know, you have to know exactly how somebody's going to react in every situation, because that's the real point. That's why you read every opinion ever is so that you can project how the Supreme Court justice is going to come down depending on what issues come before them. That's why they have all these opinions. They put all this body of work down on paper so that it can be reviewed so that everybody can know how they're going to come down on certain decisions that may come before them in the future. Which is why lawyers from private practice have a tougher time now because they don't have opinions they wrote while they were judges before exactly. they became justices. Right, and, that, and that's my point is everybody wants to know that ahead of time as opposed to just being like, this seems like a guy who can do the job based on other factors. Um, okay, so let's get back to the process. So you were talking about the interview process. All right, so the, the president interviews those that have been you know, narrowed down. In this case, he had already done a narrowing down of about 25 names before he picked Gorsuch. So was he already this, had the group. The, and was this part of the initial group when he was running for president? Was this guy on the list? Yes, okay. he was. So he already had the initial group. So then he picked this particular nominee. When he picked this nominee, once he interviewed him and decided he was the one, and I think he narrowed it down to three, decided he was the one, then a whole other team goes into action. And this is the team that prepares that justice for the United States Senate hearings, uh, the Judiciary Committee, which is going to be brutal. Uh, What is that like? 
Well, uh, some of your listeners may remember Bork. When Bork was the first Supreme Court nominee that just got beaten to death at his Senate hearing, and he withdrew his name because he got beaten up so bad, and it's called Borked. Now, they actually have a nickname for it for Supreme Court nominees. It used to be a president nominated somebody, 100% vote, nobody complained about it. They say, hey, it's the president's right to nominate who he wants to the Supreme Court. That's the way the Constitution put it. Well, the Constitution says the Senate has uh, advice and consent. Well, now they've taken it to the point where advice and consent just means you beat up the guy that's not from your party and you praise the guy that is so that we have a totally divided uh, Senate. They had to change the rules in the Senate even so that we could have a Supreme Court justice. If you remember, when Gorsuch uh, came in, they had to change the rule and make it a majority so that you wouldn't have the 60-vote filibuster that used to be the rule in the United States Senate. So the Senate had to change the rules because things are so partisan, and they've made it now that it's just a majority. Same thing with the Senate committee. It's now just a majority to get out of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. But they prepare you. They have guys in the Department of Justice and women that sit down and prepare that individual. They ask him all the tough questions. Not just that, but they also have lawyers in private practice from the large law firms in D.C. that are experienced in preparing nominees. Because that Senate committee not only hears the Supreme Court justices, but cabinet members, Secretary of Defense, they all come before the same committee. There are people in Washington that make a living preparing people to appear before Senate committees. And so the rehearsal will go over and over and over again to make sure he knows the questions and he's prepared for the answer. There are very few questions that will come before that committee that he's not prepared on or already asked about. Okay, and again, I'm shocked at how much this sounds like the NFL draft process because the same thing happens. They do mock interviews with all these people and all these other players that have been through them before and what different teams and different coaches and general managers like to ask. Was that the same way? Like there are certain senators that like to ask certain types of questions or that hit on certain types of areas during this interview process and they pick them out specifically trying to figure out what they're going to ask well believe it or not what they do is they have individuals that imitate that senator right they say you'll be senator a you'll be senator b and they'll know what that senator is like they know what that senator likes to ask about and they will actually have a committee sitting up there based on the people that are on the senate committee asking the right questions of that person And we've seen in the past, um, like the video that went viral of that judge that couldn't answer Senator Kennedy's questions about what emotion in limine is because he'd never tried a case or had a case tried in front of him in his life. And, you know, people can laugh at, at that judge and whatever. It was kind of funny. His, he is uh, interviewing for a litigation judgeship type position. But, I mean, this is not exactly an easy thing to be put through, an easy interview process or questions. Even if you've been a judge for 20 years or however long these guys have been judges for, this is still a a nerve-wracking process even for them. Sure, and it's embarrassing, too. They do everything they can to embarrass you. There's no rules of evidence in the United States Senate. So these senators can say anything and do anything they want. They can accuse you of, uh, of, of committing suicide and coming back to life. And it would be just fine because, number one, they, they have an uh, immunity. You can't sue them for slander when they're doing their official duties as a U.S. senator. So they can say whatever they want. And number two, the cameras are rolling. And even if they don't give you a chance to answer, they can say something and then say, okay, that's it, my time's up, and then move on to another senator and you never get the chance to answer. Yeah, I mean, and it is, it is interesting and funny to think about that, too. It's just they are 
putting you through tests, not just of your knowledge, but also to see how you react. And they can also take anything and any opinion that you've ever rendered that they disagree with and try to tear it apart and make you look like either a bigot or, you know, super conservative or super liberal or whatever slant they want to put on your opinion. They can do that in these interviews. Remember when uh, Justice Thomas was nominated? He was accused of sexually harassing someone that worked for him at the Department of Justice. He had to sit there and listen to these people say all these vile things about him and just sit there and take it because there really wasn't anything he could say because it was his word against the woman that was accusing him. Uh, He eventually got the nomination, but the fact is he was accused of it, and he was accused of it on national TV, and it was the headline in every newspaper. Okay, so what is the next part of the process after this? Well, once the Senate committee votes you out, then you go to the full floor of the United States Senate. Then the United States Senate votes on it. Again, because the rules have changed, because of the kind of atmosphere we have between Democrats and Republicans, it only takes a majority. Once a majority votes for you, then you become the uh, nominee to when the president or actually another justice usually swears you in at the uh, White House. So you become the justice and you're there for the rest of your natural life. Right. So it is a a lifetime nomination. Yes. We can see we've got some very elderly Supreme Court justices that are hanging on because they don't want President Trump to do the appointment that replaces them. So how often does this process happen? Well, you know, it's hard to say, but we have uh, two nominees already in a four-year term, a first term of a president. Um, Obama had, uh, I think he had two nominees during his uh, eight years, I believe. And we've got, I know that Justice um, Ginsburg, she wants to wait for a Democrat. She doesn't want to want to leave, and I think she's 83. Uh, so she doesn't want to leave uh, during this particular term. So how often does the nominee not end up becoming a Supreme Court justice? It used to be never, but it's become more common. Like I said, Bork was one. Uh, it becomes more common, especially if they find something. Carswell, a lot of people don't remember his name, but he was a nominee once. But they found that he had some relationship to the Ku Klux Klan or, or something, and so uh, his nomination went down the toilet. Uh, it happens once in a great while, and I think it happens more frequently now because it is a tougher road to hoe to become a justice than it used to be. Okay, and where is the current nominee, Kavanaugh? Where is he in the process? He is in the process of gathering documents, basically uh, providing whatever is requested by the Senate because the Senate committees will request just everything. And my guess is he's in the process of putting it together. But he's got kind of a shortcut because he did it for his Court of Appeals appointment. So really, he's really got to put together is the last 10 years, and it's probably pretty well documented because their written decisions are really what he's done in the last 10 years. Although he's a particularly bright guy because he's also taught, and they're going to find out what he's taught and where he's taught. And he has written law review articles. So they're going to gather all those as well. Okay, so he's in that initial process where they have investigative firms doing all the background checks and readings of everything that he's ever done, basically. Right. And the Senate staff. Right, okay. And then the next part of the process will be where he gets prepped for the interviews and things like that. Right, and then appear before the committee, which I'm sure, because Gorsuch had uh, excellent coverage by the media when he was in the committee, so I'm sure they're going to cover this one. There's a difference between this one and Gorsuch. Gorsuch, they knew, was replacing a conservative justice, so he did not mess up the current balance of the Supreme Court. This particular nominee replaces Kennedy. Kennedy was always the swing vote. He would be liberal sometimes and conservative sometimes. 
So if this nominee, and by all accounts he is conservative, if this nominee gets put in there, then it's going to change the balance in the Supreme Court so that conservatives will have a solid five versus four for the liberals. And that's why his nomination is a lot more sensitive. He, by the way, clerked for Kennedy, the justice he's replacing. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So how long does this t- process take as a whole? From well, beginning when they're nominated to when they get sworn in? What's the normal length of the process? I don't really know if there's a normal, but I do know that they have an October goal. Uh, they want this to be done before the November elections. So the Republican Party wants this to be done by October. The Democrats are, are of course, very upset because, if you may remember, there was somebody appointed by Obama as the candidate for that spot, but he never got a Senate vote until Obama was out of office, and at that point his name was removed by the president, which was Trump. So Democrats are upset that they're actually putting somebody in before the elections, but my guess is they're not going to be able to stop the Republicans. Very interesting time, and it's uh, hitting the news today, so people keep a lookout. Uh, Watch the Senate interviews. It can be really interesting, and you can learn a lot about the candidate and the nominee that may be a Supreme Court justice for the rest of our lifetime, basically how some of these go. And But you got to realize that only in, because of there's only a, a two-vote margin in the Senate for Republicans, that there are three Republicans right now who really control what may or may not happen to this candidate. Uh, there's one from Alaska, one from Maine, and Rand Paul. Those three, if they don't vote with the Republicans and they vote with the Democrats against this guy, then he's not going to make it. It's that close. Okay. So like I said, keep an eye out, keep an ear out. Um, If you have any other topics you want us to hit on, shoot us an email, hit us up on social media. Thanks for listening to us. We'll be back with you guys next time.